Hey everyone, this is Patrick Iani, nine-year MLS veteran and U.S. Olympian, and now CEO of Iani Training, and this is The Game Plan. On The Game Plan, we're going to hear from plenty of great athletes from the big four U.S. sports, but I'm especially thrilled to speak to our next guest, Patrick Iani, nine-year Major League Soccer veteran and member of the 2008 U.S. Men's Olympic Soccer Team, now a published author and founder of Iani Training. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us on The Game Plan. Jay and Tim, thank you for having me on The Game Plan. Yeah, absolutely. The pleasure is ours, of course. Tim and I can't wait to learn more about the amazing things that you're doing with Aani Training and, and the culture around youth soccer. But for our listeners who maybe only went as far as youth soccer in their own playing careers and those that are less familiar with the journey of a pro soccer player, can you tell us a bit about your journey to the MLS? Yeah, so nowadays there's there's something called development academies, and that's sort of the highest level of youth soccer in America. When I was growing up, I played AYSO through about 10 years old, played on some kind of all-star teams at the end of each of those years, but uh, for the most part, it was kind of recreational until about 10, then started hitting my like club or travel or competitive, so many words for it, um, but around 10 and did that to about 14 years old, and then once I was uh, 14, I started to go through this something called the ODP system in America. Soccer listeners will know, other, others won't, but it's Olympic Development Program. And that was the way to kind of get in closer and closer to the, to the national team, uh, the youth national team, that is. And that first year, I, I ended up making the youth national team, kid from a small town. I really didn't know that I was, I was that good at soccer. And so it was kind of a surprise. But anyways, stay with that youth national team through through the Olympic team, through my time at UCLA and through the beginning years of my time with Major League Soccer. That's kind of my journey. Ended up playing uh, nine years, actually, in Major League Soccer was three in Houston, five in Seattle and uh, one in Chicago at the end. It was a it was a good ride. Uh, and that's kind of and nowadays those development academies. That's the pathway to the higher level colleges and and uh, signing. A lot of guys are signing pro now in MLS at 16, 17 years old. How many athletes are in, in that ODP program or how many were in it when you were accepted into the program? And is that is it similar today? Well, on, on the county level, there's, you know, every county's got a team, essentially. At the state level, there was like larger soccer teams or around, you know, 20 players, 20 active players per state. That was it. And then for the regional pool, it was like there was four regions and basically 20 again for, for your region and then 20 again for the for the national team. But nowadays you got in New York, there's in each age group, you're looking at probably yeah, 200 kids that are playing at this highest level, you know, in Long Island alone, Long Island Junior Soccer League, which, who we've been working with, with the Yanni training, they have 55,000 kids playing wow. uh, soccer on the island. Yeah. And that, that includes that includes rec and kind of travel ball, but does not include the, you know, the academies. So hyper competitive. Uh, when did you realize you had the opportunity to go pro? Not actually until I was on the under 20 World Cup team. So it was like March of 2005. I was still 19. And we went to Germany with that team to gel and to get some experience playing international games. And uh, we came back and they said, hey, there's someone from Hamburg um, in Germany, team called Hamburg in Germany. I had no clue. All I knew was David Beckham and Manchester United at the time. Right. So, yeah, my the the viewership of soccer was a lot less in the United States in 2005. So I said, oh, Hamburg, cool. I, I don't know who that is, but they ended up, they're like, well, they have a contract here for you for, for three years for $400,000. And I was like, 
back then I was like, Sold. <laughs> I, I, I was getting paid a thousand dollars for UCLA to pay my rent and some food, you know? So I was like, right, yeah. wow. Um, funny thing is I, I ended up thinking like, wow, well, this is the only team that's seen me. I might actually be pretty good at soccer. And so I was like, I'm going to roll the dice. I'm not going to sign this. I'm going to roll the dice going to the, going to the U20 world cup. And I did, and there was no offers after it. And our team played really well. But uh, and actually a guy for, for some viewers that or maybe soccer viewers, a guy named Benny Fellhaber that has had a good, really good career, played for the U.S. men's national team. He ended up playing the position that they wanted me to come play for him. And he ended up signing a, a pretty big deal. To go play over there. So, yeah. So how, how do you, how does that work with uh, guys at your level when you're deciding between do you want to go international, which league you're going to play for internationally? Or do you stay with the MLS? And now, obviously, with the MLS popularity growing, maybe that's a, a little bit of a tougher decision. But is it usually that, you know, it sort of trickles down where, where some guys will go play in the UK and then maybe then Italy and then maybe then the MLS? Or how did it work when you were going through it? Yeah, uh, I think it's fairly similar to when I was going through it in the sense that the money's money's bigger over there. I actually, MLS had offered me a contract just um, a few months prior to that Hamburg offer. Uh, they'd offered me a contract for maybe two years guaranteed, maybe just one year compared to the three years in Hamburg. And it was like, I think it was 40,000 a year. And so money's gone up in MLS, but it's also gone up around the world. Uh, yeah, I ended up signing with MLS six months uh, after the World Cup. So beginning of 2006 for, it was like three years and about 100,000 each year, three years guaranteed, 100,000, yeah. What I think is that the big determining factor is if you're sort of emotionally uh, mature enough to take that leap um, without family into new culture. For me, there was like no question. I remember crying on the way home from a Christmas holiday, trying to decide if I was going to take that first offer from MLS. And my mom's like, I think that might be your answer. <laughs> you know, like the fact that it's just tearing you up. I'm like, yeah, I think I feel like I need, I have to go kind of thing, but I really want to stay at UCLA. And so, yeah. Do you feel like now, 15 years later, your path would have been markedly different than it was at that transition time? You know, would there have been a higher likelihood now that you would have played overseas or are you pretty confident you would have still um, ended up with the MLS? No, I think I, I, I would have definitely tested myself. My, me personally and the changes that have happened within me, I would have, I think, gone for it and taken a risk knowing that from a financial standpoint, even alone, definitely worth taking the risk. And understanding that I would have fallen on my, my feet at the end of the day, no matter what, um, you're going to get a greater challenge as a person and as a player going overseas right now. Uh, and I'm a big fan of Major League Soccer, and Major League Soccer is growing tremendously. And they just signed a new five-year yeah. CBA. Uh, it's an awesome league and growing. But I think that it would have been a, a, a huge growing for me if I would have gone over there. Yeah. And so as you go through those nine years in the MLS, you go through these awesome experiences playing at the Beijing Olympics. At what point during that journey do you start thinking about, hey, what comes next? I'm going to be playing at the pro level, at the highest level for only so long. When did you start thinking about what came after the game? Yeah, well, for me, the, the combination of passion and then an excellence left me with really soccer. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> I started to become really interested in coaching about halfway through my career. So okay. sometime in Seattle, first or second year, there was things that I wanted to see our team do differently. And I got really sort of kind of vocal within our group, uh, within our team, in terms of style of play and different things that I, I felt 
kind of going rogue a little bit and try to create a bit of a mutiny in terms of how we played at at that point in time. Okay. And uh, I don't even know if the coaches, I think they knew knew that they kind of caught on to it. And we're like, I started getting called into captain's meetings with coaches based on that only. We're like, we got to, we got to rein this guy in. But uh, (laughs) was there like a specific uh, time you acted out? Yeah. I'm thinking specifically about a preseason trip. Salt Lake at the time was a, was a team that didn't have nearly the budget we had. The Seattle Sounders still are one of the biggest teams in the league and spend more than most. And Salt Lake was just a thorn in our side you know, every year, especially in, in kind of the playoffs around 2009, 10, 11. We did get the, I think the best of them at one point, but and this was before we had gotten the best of them. And I just thought we just felt like we were such a we were on the defensive. And so I was starting to go around to every single teammate in preseason. We'd have our two days. And I'd go around to every teammate and or I was going around to every teammate like talking to him like, hey, <laughs> if we all decide that, that we want to play this way, we can just play this way. And I knew the coach, as long as we were winning, we'd be all right. And it ended up being that we we ended up trying. We, we ended up taking it on a bit. It was cool. So so that, that that's what made you realize that you wanted to get on the coaching side. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised I didn't get traded, though, to be honest. Like I wasn't I was I think I was so cheap at the time that, that they were like. Oh, you're a pretty good player for how much you're making. So, <laughs> so anyways, yeah, but that's what I started to think about coaching a little bit. Nothing crazy. I, I started to do some volunteer coaching at Northwest University up in Kirkland, Washington. That was about the extent of, of what I thought about. And then I kind of, after that little stint of trying to create a mutiny, I, I decided I'll actually try to start and just focus on playing and <laughs> focus on starting, I should say. And then I just kind of ran, ran it through. And then when I got to the end of my career, I got to the end of my eighth year and I started to seek therapy. There was quite a bit of anxiety that was always there. Pretty, pretty intense anxiety and depression. And I had never realized it or put those those terms on it. I remember being in this place in Alaska called the White Raven Center, an incredible uh, therapeutic retreat center. And I was there and, and it, after doing a few of their processes, I was I was in my bedroom with a friend of mine actually that was doing it with me. And I said, dude, I think I'm I think I'm done playing. And, and I had one more year, like 150 grand on the table that was guaranteed. And I was like, I think I'm just going to hand it back to MLS and uh, and walk. And and he, and he goes, wow, wait a second, dude. He's like, just he was he was he's like 10 years older than me. He's like, dude, just go take your money and enjoy it. He's like, you do more therapy if you want with money, with some of the money and just, you know, whatever. You'll, and you can take the year to, to figure out what you want to do next. And so. I was happy to, I was happy to just turn, turn another way, but I was like, all right, I, I will. And then I got, I got traded to Chicago, um, before my last year, I'd almost, I got like three, we, my, my wife and I love Seattle. And it was like, we we're three days away from going back to preseason in Seattle. The coach called me and was like, mm-hmm. Hey, we traded you. This is a good part. Good part of the story is that the coach from Chicago called me and said, Hey, uh, Hey, you know, you know we're, we're excited you're coming and everything, but I'll be honest with you. We were trying to trade for someone else in Seattle. We're like, hey, you got to take him, too. <laughs> and if you oh take him, God. then we'll do a trade. <laughs> kind of a good story for people to know that that's sometimes the case, you know, where where you're not yeah. just uh, where you're not. We're definitely not wanted, um, so to speak. And so anyways, went out to Chicago and pretty much knew I, I, it was my last year and thought, well, OK, what's what's next? And I right away went to coaching. There was one college up in Northern California uh, that offered me an assistant job. And it was a real dose of reality of 40 grand, or I think it was like 36 grand. And I'm like, 
um, okay, so I can do that. <laughs> like I can definitely yeah. do that and coach club soccer and do private lessons and that sort of thing. But my brother did mortgage banking and it's done well for himself. And I thought, well, hey, like I think, you know, my brother and I have equal intelligence and, and people skills. Like I could do that. And so I so I jumped right into it. How long did it last? <laughs> well, <laughs> by the time I got my license in I think May, by the time it like went through the California system, it took a while. And by the time I was had kind of decided I was done, I hadn't told told the boss yet, but it was about four or five months. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I was in the I was in the office for about nine months. It took me about took me th- three weeks, three or four weeks at the end before I was like, yeah, I'm gonna I'm going to leave with no idea what I was going to do. And I was coaching, I was coaching a club team at the time and was enjoying that, but knew I didn't want to, you know, I, I'd seen the road of some friends that were coaching three or four club teams, you know, and making 60, 70 grand a year and coaching privates and stuff and always gone at nights and on the weekends and I had two young kids and I was like, that's not going to work. 2016, I took like five months um, and did a, a lot of therapy and I came out of the end of that Hoffman Institute experience. I remember like letting go of some serious addiction that I had at the end of that thing and was like, mm-hmm. and all of this focus and clarity like came in, like it just rushed into my body. And I was like, I want to bring this therapeutic world knowing now that it would it massively affected my ability to make a world cup team, which was something that I was kind of, in the trajectory of, of going to make make a world cup team and then it, i wasn't able to to continue to progress in my development and i had started to learn this and learn about my relationship with the game and i was essentially trying to earn love through the game and it wasn't something that i was ever playing from a very young age so i thought this is what i want to do i want to try to merge this therapeutic world and the sports world in a way where we can start to see players that are that are happy and i had the experience of, of sitting in locker rooms with a lot of guys that were depressed and really anxious year to year about their about their situation and made it so that they couldn't enjoy the game and they couldn't really get that much better because they were so focused on kind of surviving in that space so wow so it's it's fair to say that became the mission for you right awareness of the mental health component and then also how to make the game fun make sure the game's fun and it's kids are doing it for the right reason yeah it's a great way of saying it the for me it's like the the relationship that athletes in America have with the game starts at three or four years old, right? Most athletes that are Mm -hmm. playing at 12 or 13 or in college or professionally are starting off playing at three or four years old, right? Let's be honest. Like they're all, they've been brought into some structured system. That's where it begins. That's, that's where your relationship with the game starts. And that relationship with the game for 100% of American athletes is one that is toxic because what they are doing, human development, right? Child development from zero to 10, zero to 12 is all about creating a sense of who I am based out of the unconditional love of your caretakers, your parents. And they're asking the questions, what makes me safe and what makes me valuable on an unconscious level? And when that is paired or or done simultaneously with a performance-driven task, they start to establish the sense of, I am safe and valuable because of what I do. And that's inherently traumatic. And that's what we're trying to, that's what we've been saying for the last two or three years. <laughs> and at first, uh, people listen and be like, dude, this is awesome, but wouldn't really want to invest in, in bringing our workshop or our, our guidebooks into the clubs. And now 
after two or three years, it seems like the awareness has opened up to a point and the suffering for club directors and coaches has come to a point, a tipping point where they're like, yeah, we, we want to do something different. Okay. Just being positive and saying it's fun and convincing ourselves isn't good enough because we see the anxiety at eight and nine years old already. And earlier, I, I was training a six-year-old kid. When I say train, we are, I call it soccer playtime basically, right? But we're, we were playing a game called soccer tennis and you're kind of passing the ball back and forth in the air over, over whatever you have, a, you know, a bench or so something. And the kid, the ball was going to the side of him. And every time he would just let it bounce and, and go and skip off. And he was a good, like for six years old, he's like a very advanced soccer player. And I came up to him, I said, Hey, Hey bud, why, uh, why do you think you're not going for that ball? And he goes, I don't know. I go, could it be because you don't want to make a mistake? And he goes, yeah, that's it. Well, I said, what do you feel? How do you feel when you, when you make a mistake? He goes, bad. And the emotion was like right there. And I'm like, tell me about what does bad feel like? And he goes, pain. And where does that, where do you feel that? He goes, in my chest. I was like, okay. So I said, I want you to be able to feel that, right? So all my trainings for younger kids now is all about feeling. I challenge them uh, based on their skill level. The purpose of triggering this emotion that's already sitting within them so that they get to experience that. And then I, of course, let them play and I go over to the parents and I say, okay, this is what's happening with your, your with your son or daughter at this age. And, and, and you could be helpful by after they have a practice or a game, you come to them and ask them, you know, you can ask them how they're feeling. Nothing about, did yeah. you have fun? Nothing about how did you play? Nothing about, did you win? Just how are you feeling? And that gives them the chance to bring the full breadth of their experience to the table in their families in a way that provides, they, they feel an unconditional love, right? I say this and it's like, oh, well, why don't we all do this? And the reason we don't do it and why my parents have a difficult time with this is because they are trying to get unmet needs from their childhood met yep. in this dynamic, in this relationship. And, and kids, and uh, uh, Tim, do you have kids? I know Jay doesn't yeah. yet. No, I, I'm nodding my head and everything you're saying. I have a four-year-old and an almost two-year-old and my four-year-old does some soccer and other sports and it's this constant internal battle that I have where, you know, we take him to this soccer practice and occasionally he can be shy and he doesn't want to participate. And then the competitiveness in, in me, I feel comes out. I'm like, Oh, why isn't he playing? Like he needs to get involved. But then I actually, you know, I have a very similar perspective to you or I try to, but I, I try to catch myself, you know, because I think back to my childhood too, and don't necessarily want to project things onto my kids. So I, I totally hear everything you're saying. And I, I we definitely want to get into the specifics of Ioni training and, and drill down there. But one other thing on this I want to ask you is I feel like soccer in the U.S. has always been kind of the most institutionalized, or I should say, uh, has had the club and assessment model the longest, maybe than any other sport where you're pretty quickly filtered out of either you're going to elevate and be part of club soccer or you're not like in my childhood, it was like, you're going to play, you're going to do travel tournaments on the weekends or you're not. And now almost every sport is like that, but I think soccer was ahead in that and it created a lot of burnout. And I, the question I have for you is if that's also has been an influence on like the state of us soccer. Curious about that. Yeah. When we talk about the state of us soccer. We're talking about the men's national team, right? And the fact that we didn't that's qualify right. for a world cup and no one's, you know, or well, I shouldn't say no one. I think that their staff, right? And some people around it and that know those people are, are fairly confident in the, in the new coaching staff and 
I, I think the guy's a really good coach there, that's there right now, Greg Berhalter. However, in the big picture, we've really struggled internationally. And it's one of the few sports that the U.S. struggles internationally. And I do very much think that we're starting to wake up and the culture is starting to shift to realize that we have sacrificed child development for player development from a very young age. Yeah. And uh, that has massive impact on our our players' ability to be courageous and creative to and to be able to use all these different faculties that are alive when you are playing. But when you are working, right? And that's what that's the state that we bring them into when we bring them to these structured systems at such an early age, they begin to work, right? They were working your your kid, right? It's points has already started to work for your love based on the stuff that's right. coming up inside of you. He senses that I am good if I work hard, right? You know, if I engage um, and these kind of things, right? Sorry, we might get into some some therapy for Tim here, but <laughs> no, hey, listen, that's I, I tell him that he needs it all the time. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, hey, I go to therapy, actually. And uh, <laughs> these are all things I'm cognizant of with my kid when it comes to encouragement and not wanting to project or not wanting to mess with his need for my approval as a thing that conflates like what he needs to do or wants to do. It's not easy. That's that's the challenge of being a parent. Let's build on on what you're saying there in terms of the scale of the problem. And so as I was looking at just the, the size of youth soccer in the U.S. today, I mean, it's, you know, over 3 million youth soccer players, right? Just under half are between 10 and 14. And then there's sort of another, call it like, you know, 37% that are under 10. And then there's coaches of maybe, what, 300, 400,000. So like where in that segment are you finding the most perception or the most receptiveness from these coaches or from these parents as you go in and start to target three million uh, player market, where are you finding the most receptiveness? Honestly, everywhere, it, at every age group. We've handed this book, I handed this book to a uh, a dad of a nine-year-old kid during a private lesson. And the dad, I could sense, he wasn't the dad that was going to push his kid and tell him, you need to do this, you need to do that. But the dad was really uncomfortable watching his son train with me and not, Stim said, like, engage with me and be able to Obviously, they're you know paying some money. I think the dad's kind of like, we want to get the most out of this, right? But that's that can't be the approach, right? And so I had one of I had on frame. I handed the dad a copy of it and um, kept working with his son. And like five ten minutes later, I look over and the kid and the dad's crying. So I'm like, hey, is you know is everything all right? And he goes, yeah, yeah. This book just hit me really hard. And I was like, well, that was the point. <laughs> um, so we've seen I've seen that I've seen a dad of a 16 year old girl also that I train. The daughter, like the amount of self-judgment was so, so intense that trying to train her was almost completely pointless in the sense that the ability to really soak in at any deep level what I was saying and be able to bring it into uh, her training was was completely obsolete pretty much. And so I said to her, or I said to dad, I said, hey, please go through this. And it ended up being that she had a the, the daughter had a real shift in the way that she was able to come to the game and play with like more ownership and more desire, I guess. I think desire is the big one. I think you got a lot of kids around the country that at all age groups, again, that aren't connected to their desire to be excellent even. Right. And, I'm, and that's not the point of this. Right. Especially in the younger ages. They're so busy trying to get this need met through the game, this love need met that it causes them to be super safe in the way that they approach everything and the truth is there's a part of them there's a we call it the difference between a lion drive and an antelope drive right the lion knows this is what i want i'm gonna go get it 
and the antelope is also highly driven, but based completely out of fear, right? And is just running for their lives. And that's what you see with a lot of youth players at every level, where our goal with the Ani training was completely revolutionize youth sports culture. We started with soccer. We're going to end up, you know, making them into all the different sports. For a branding purpose, I think that like football dads, you know, are going to appreciate a big football on the front of the front of the cover and be like, and, the, you know, an endorsement from Peyton Manning instead of Clint Dempsey or something, you know, and I think that'll help create the buy-in that we want to shift this thing. So, and to Tim's point earlier, Tim, is, it is all like you are a step, a massive step ahead, right? Because of the awareness is what we're trying to create. We're not trying to educate parents. We're trying to bring a deeper level of awareness into what's going on within them and within their children. And at that point, the, the, the love that we have for our kids will kick in and, and sort of help guide the process um, as opposed to our pain that, that typically ends up unconsciously being the driver. And that ends up, ends up driving some of the behavior that we see. I mean, these are very transferable lessons. You see it even outside of sports where parents are putting their kids up and using them as status symbols in a way, right? And it's like, hey, this is this is not a relationship that's for that. You know, even not being a parent, I can't speak from that example, but even thinking back to, to my childhood, you know, getting involved in whether it was sports or music, there's always this performative aspect of it. You know, hearing you talk about it now, it's I'm referencing back to the times where something was done out of love, whereas it was done out of performance. Let's talk about how you're expanding it out a little bit or how you're thinking about the, the business side of what you're building. So you obviously got the guidebooks that you're writing. And then you've got the training, I guess, seminars or, or coaching sessions that you do. How do you get to these customers and, and really engage with both the kids, the, the coaches, and then the parents, obviously, uh, and build out the business side of Ioni training? Yeah, so we've, we've gotten the guidebooks into about six organizations around the country now. And then we have it up on Amazon. So people are, are coming to, to the book that way as well, or to both books. On Frame is the parent book and the Coaching Revolution is the coach book. And then we've, we've done three workshops in different places around the country, and those are starting to roll. So we have a couple coming up in March on the East Coast. It's kind of slowly starting to roll where clubs are starting to shift the way they look at this and realize that they need to spend resources on it to actually shift it. Before, we could put a, a code of conduct for parents on our website um, and kind right. of check the box of parent education. And now they're realizing, hey, this is something, this is a massive problem, and we want to change it. Quite honestly, our, we've been trying to get uh, in front of audiences around the country at different conventions, right? And just try to impress them with what we, with our findings, right? And hope that it resonates on a deeper level. Because it's, it's ultimately going to come from a place within them that understands and sees that there is an issue and that we want to fix it, right? Now we're talking about targeting and, and finding the people out there the maybe it's five to 10% right now that are ready to act on changing culture and spending resources on this. So it's been a, an interesting kind of journey in that trying to find these people. Um, but we've kind of we've, we've tried to take a very kind of spirit led approach to this in the sense that, hey, this is going to happen when it's meant to happen. And so we just have kept talking kind of like Old Testament prophets and saying, hey, there's damage, there's damage being done. And uh, we really, really want to shift culture. And that 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 is getting these into clubs, you know, can be quick. It's been quick for some, but for, for quite a few, it's been this, there's been resistance within us because we believe that there is an addiction to mediocrity around this subject um, where we just can kind of keep seeing it and see the damage being done. And we're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but, they, but we don't connect it. Like if we do not do anything, you know, if we don't bring parents and experience of greater depth, 
it's going to remain the same, right? And we're just going to, we'll just keep talking back and forth and we'll talk about the crazy soccer parent, right? As yeah. if, as if they're the problem in reality, it's, it's a cultural issue. It's across the board. It's very pervasive. So we're just trying to, we're trying to very much get into clubs and shift club cultures and then see the snowball effect of that. And, and we can, we're, we're very much focused on the few clubs that are, that are coming to us. And there's more now we're, we're just focused on each of those clubs. And, uh, because it's just, more or less me kind of taking some of this, these business inquiries and my business partner sure. <clears throat> spending his, his energies when he goes and talks and, and flying around and talking to different people at different conventions. That's sort of where we're at right now. Yeah, let's click in a little bit on that, that idea of the addiction to mediocrity. That's a really interesting framework for entrenched cultures, whether you're selling software, you're selling the service, the training service, entrenched cultures become a really hard thing to break, right? Who is this more of an incentive for to change? Is it the coaches that are really most excited about that culture changing because they don't have parents breathing down their neck? Is it other parents that are going to look at, you know, that one angry dad on the sideline and be like, hey, here's a copy of On Frame, like, go read it. You're going to need this. Or is it even the kids that need to turn around and speak to their parents and say, you know, coaches said there's this training session happening. We should be part of it. So where does the wedge come into that culture? And then where are the incentives for people not to change? Yeah, I, I, that's a great question. Uh, I think that part of it is a peer pressure, right? I think that there's a peer pressure yeah. in the parenting sphere, right? Tim, Tim, I know this, that like, you don't want to be the asshole that doesn't want to learn about parenting, right? Does, doesn't want to become a quote unquote better parent. And so I think that's a huge piece of it. And I think that that's starting to help us a bit. And then I think that you have clubs that when we're speaking to clubs now, it's not talking about whether on-frame works or not. On-frame is incredibly powerful, incredibly impactful. And we have probably 100 parent testimonials now, not to mention others have gone through it, obviously. We've got 100 parent testimonials and, and they are powerful, really powerful. It's now talking to clubs about, hey, like we know that the awareness around mental and emotional health and spiritual health, right? We like to bring in all three of those aspects because I think we do a disservice just talking about mental health. And this is the direction that this thing is going and we all see it, right? And now it's just, when can we surrender into the flow of where we are in 2020 and going forward where this is going to become more and more a thing? And so we kind of tell clubs, hey, do you want to be the first club or one of the first clubs that d does this? Or do you want to jump on the bandwagon in, you know, five, 10 years after everyone's doing it? And the truth is the, the clubs that do it on the front end, their, their cultures are going to be a heck of a lot healthier. And it's going to draw more and more people to that culture as the other ones are, we're starting to see all the damage and there's just, um, we're starting to see this. And, and as parents wake up to, Hey, this is quite damaging to our kids identity development and, and their ability to then when they're, you know, 14, 16, 18, they like, they should be able to ask the question around those ages. What do I want to do with my life? Right. Have an idea. Well, of course, in our culture, everyone's like, I didn't know what I want to do until I was 30. Right. Um, but that's a lot because I'm I was going back to reverse engineer this step in Maslow's hierarchy of needs to deal with the sense of love and belonging and really establish that within myself so that I could move on to the next level, which is what I want to do. But that, as I mentioned earlier, is took a decent amount of therapy you know, we don't want to set up our kids for, they're going to have therapy. My kids are going to need to go to therapy, right? And, but I don't want to set them up for more therapy. And as I talked to a dad yesterday, or there was a few dads that were sitting around and they're like, what are we doing in youth sports? And I just mm. was like, uh, that's for you to answer, you know? But 
Um, yeah. But it's interesting. I couldn't, I, w- I was like, I was like, wow. And I heard it was so, it just hit me even after being in this for doing this for, for four years now. I'm like, man, that is, it was powerful to hear a dad say that. You gave the example of, you know, a father and son interaction on like a personal training level. I'm curious to know what does a training session look like? Can you give us some other examples of what the actual interaction looks like? Yeah. So I did a team on Wednesday, uh, a girls team, 10 year old girls. And it was my first time training them. I told the coaches, I said, this is going to be a little different. Just want to warn you guys. Right. And so I, I sat with the girls to start off with. And I just asked them, I said, Hey, this is, this session is more or less about you becoming a happy soccer player. And I said, what do you guys experience when you guys play against better teams? And cause that's often when, when the kids get triggered, right. And when the parents get triggered because their kids aren't quote unquote succeeding and aren't that, like you said, Jay, that aren't the status symbol, right. They, they're not fitting into the parents mold there. And so one girl raised her hand right away. It was like, I get really nervous. And another girl raised her hand and says, I get a lot of anxiety. Another girl raised her hand and said, I get really scared. And I was like, wow, this is awesome engagement right off the bat with this group. I said, okay. I said, how do you know that you feel scared, anxious, nervous? They're like, well, you know, you just know. I'm like, well, how? Like if I was, if I came up to you, right. And very American thing to say, how are you doing? And everyone says, good. Right. And so I said, how do we know when we feel good? And, and they started to get it. They're like, oh yeah. When I feel nervous, I feel it here in my chest. Another girl, I was like, anyone else feel it somewhere else? They're like, yeah, I feel it in my stomach. I'm like, okay, good. I said, so today we are going to play one V one. We are going to, you know, you'll stand in a line. There's eight girls here, four on the defensive side, four and one, one at a time on each side, you'll come out and you'll just play one versus one. And I want you to check in before go at it. So you can check in. There's anxiety already present in their bodies. They're triggered before they even step onto the field, right? Or begin any movement toward each other. Then they play in one one wins, so to speak, one loses, right? And the one that loses, all this depression comes into their body and they it kind of and it pushes down on their on their body in a way that keeps them from being able to freely move the next time, typically. And so after each run, so to speak, I I would have them, I had a I created a little circle with cones that was about 10 yards away from the grid that they would jog there first, close their eyes, and just feel their bodies. And just feel for 10, 15 seconds just to raise their awareness to what they were experiencing. I should have had the coaches do it too. One coach was massively triggered that I wasn't just telling them, you know, how how to do everything from a soccer side. So anyways, they would run there and then they'd then they'd get back in line and they'd go again. Uh, one particular girl, after about five minutes, went to beat someone. The girl kind of cut her off. It's good defensive play. She jogged right over to the back of the line. Forgot about my my feeling circle, right? That I had set up, but I she came to the back of the line and was just, I could see it, like the tears were starting to come. I said, I, said, I, I walked over. I said, hey, you crying? She's like, yeah. I said, okay, come over here with me. And we sat away from the group. Just the coaches kind of kept them going, playing 1v1 and just sat with her and just told her, I said, this is something that's been there for a while. Um, and this is a younger party that's really scared and seeking safety and seeking a sense of, of love through your performance here. And yeah, so I just sat there with her and, and you know, gave her some time and, and, uh, and just kept bringing her attention back into her body where, where that actually was and, and giving her the freedom. I said, this is what this training is about. I said, this stuff has to come out. And then once this stuff comes out, then we can go back to the game and then we don't have all this weight 
we're carrying towards it. It's just something that we can play. Um, and so that's essentially what, what I'm working yeah. with at every level. And yeah. it's the same. Oh, that's it's, powerful. It's the same with college players too. Yeah. Yeah. Same with college and professional players too, that you're doing the exact same thing as you're, you're showing them they're, that they're seeking safety. And we show that by showing what their body is experiencing. Is it, is it harder when it's older or, or do you find that, uh, the older ones are more receptive and the younger ones maybe don't even know that they're feeling this or is it the other way around? Um, it's kind of a mixed bag. You know, I think that people, when we think of it, our experience here as, as a soul, I think sometimes souls are just ready to start to tap into this Pandora's box and some need to suffer a little bit more. <laughs> right. I mean, I know for me, I, I, I mean, my, experience now looking back on my days at UCLA and and these youth national teams and and playing in major league soccer was really quite miserable you know now relatively speaking um at the time I was like you know my answers to everyone would be yeah this it was the Olympics were good they were amazing right and I had to only speak from that standpoint but the truth is they were really miserable so I wasn't ready to do I wasn't ready to to change at that point. And so I think that some people are, are ready to change and some people are not. And that's just, that's just how it is. And I, and I think that, that the suffering that those people are in that aren't changing is going to be the thing that eventually kind of wakes them up. I think that was the case for me. And I think that you get 10 year olds this, that are ready to open up and to shift their relationship with their world. It's not just sports. It's with their, their entire world. And, um, at 10 years old and you get some, some professionals that are, are saying, no, nope, I'm good. Uh, I, you know, I can manage it with the, um, the drugs that I have around me, right? My phone, whatever it is, you know, alcohol, whatever drama, <laughs> drama is a big one, right? That we, that we forget. We manage our pain through creating problems and, you know, creating busyness in our lives so many ways. So yeah, this is amazing, uh, Pat. I think we should. Um, I think wrap. And up. I wish I could. I wish we could talk yeah, all day. Yeah, this we, is this is awesome. Yeah, man. that's um, why I'm not asking anything else because I just want to <laughs> keep going. But I think we need to wrap. So I guess where where we can build off of that is thinking back on you face adversity as part of every athlete's journey. You're facing new challenges now as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. What are the things that you come back to and hold on to when you're facing these challenges? And how do you mo motivate yourself? To yeah, keep going? so I, I grew up in a very fundamental kind of Christian world, and I knew I was taught at a very young age, and not just through through that space, but just through our American culture, like a good life comes through addition, the addition of things. Uh, another way of saying it is that that heaven is a process of addition, and someone flipped that for me about five or six years ago and said that. Heaven is a process of subtraction. For me, when I face adversity, and it happens all the time still, is that I'm realizing that there's something within me that's coming up. And to, so to be able to be present with that thing within me, as opposed to something, you know, trying to conquer something outside of myself for the purpose of being awesome or being amazing, I believe I certainly want greater levels of peace and joy um, in my life and connection. and that doesn't happen through through just just steamrolling over obstacles with this you know background belief that I will be amazing once I do this um but rather so I would my well yeah so when it's dealing with adversity it's very much a, an internal process of acknowledging what's happening and gaining a greater awareness which I think has given me a greater deal of freedom 
you provided a ton of amazing advice and uh, perspective. We really appreciate it. I think one parting thought we'd love to end on is any advice you have specifically to professional athletes out there uh, as they think about the transition from their playing career into what's next, uh, you know, based on your journey, what, what kind of um, support or parting word would you, would you give them? I would say to, I would say to observe, observe the stories that are circling on a regular basis. And that takes typically a, a short kind of meditation discipline to observe the stories that are going through your head. So for some, right, when, it, when I was going at, when I was leaving the game, it was very much of how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to pay for my kids and my wife and all this kind of stuff? And that was just constant. And I had to face that in, in a way where I stopped doing anything for a little bit, right? And I focused completely on the trauma that was creating those stories. So the trauma in the body, if we can deal with that stuff and remove that stuff, the mind gets a lot quieter even the point where you, where you start to not hear that, that stuff at all anymore. And so I would say to observe the stories, but then lead yourself into your body and realize that, that we do hold trauma in our bodies. And if we don't deal with that, it's going to unconscious, like Carl Jung said, famous psychologist said, 70% of what we do is driven by our unconscious. And so if we can work through that world and gain greater awareness of what, and curiosity as to why we do the things we do, why do we spend so much time trying to find a job after our playing careers, right? As opposed to start to get a sense of, of a deep sense of peace that will, lead, will, will allow for, through gaining peace and clarity, your, your sort of passions will um, emerge and, um, and desire for, what you, for the service you want to do in the world will emerge out of that. And that's a huge piece of it. And I think that that's, we got a lot of professional athletes coming out that are sort of skipping that step and going straight into jobs and there's nothing wrong with it but i think that they from my conversations with quite a few of them you sense that they want to be passionate about something again but also have peace you know a lot of more passionate about their sport but we're we're addicted to to a number of things they want deep peace and a sense of passion and, and service to their communities awesome great. thanks pat i think that's a great way to end it uh, we appreciate you coming on the game plan thank you for having me on the game plan guys Hey everyone, this is Jay Kapoor. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Game Plan. So at the end of every episode, Tim and I do what we call our weekly partner meeting. This is an opportunity for us to discuss the company that you just heard about, share some of our key takeaways, and offer some perspective on the challenges that we see this company face. We hope this is a look into the thought process of two early stage VC investors, and we hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. All right, Tim, welcome back to another edition of our partner meeting uh, with after our episode with Patrick Ayani. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed that one, but I want to get your take, especially from the parents' perspective. What did you think about our, our chat with Patrick? Yeah, I mean, look, I really enjoyed the conversation with Patrick. I appreciated how open and just real he was. Uh, you know, my parents' perspective, my kids are still very young, but I already see exactly some of the things he's talking about. So it was really encouraging to me to see that he's, working with kids as young as three and, and four. And I think for those of us who have played sports at any point in our life or, or had other things that we were focused on, academics, music, whatever it may be, we could probably pull from our own childhood too some of the things he was talking about and think about, okay, how, how did that uh, need to perform, you know, affect how I approach certain things or, you know, what I cared about. And so 
that was the biggest thing for sure. And I think it ties in with what we see in the youth sports market broadly. I mean, this is now reportedly, you know, over $17 billion industry. Wow. And I've seen hundreds, literally hundreds of companies focus on the opportunity with youth sports and how to monetize that and tap into this rapidly growing industry. And it's becoming professionalized. But we can't forget that it's about the kids. And so it's just really now coming into light how much kids are affected by this, both uh, certainly actually physically with a lot of the overuse problems that we're seeing, but also um, emotionally. And sports, it should be about fun and play. And it should yeah. be about teamwork and learning how to work with other people. Um, and yes, it should be about competition, you know, and striving for excellence. But there needs to be a balance there. And so to see Patrick come in, take his learnings and try to implement them. And he just has so much credibility as a pro athlete, but to also be able to kind of check himself yeah. and say, look, just because I was brought up a certain way doesn't mean that that's the ultimate way to get somewhere. You know, there's other ways to do this. Let's build the complete person. So look, the conversation really hit me and I enjoyed it. And I actually already followed up with Patrick because we're going to talk more about it. Yeah. No. And you know, building off of what you said there about the hundreds of companies that you've seen trying to tap into this market, uh, you know, one of the things that really stood out to me and a, and a challenge that I think he recognizes is this is a problem that he sees. This is a problem that he recognizes. I think people that are thoughtful like yourself also understand that the relationship that the coach, the parent and, and the youth athlete athlete has, um, you know, is, is a tenuous one, especially at an important, you know, pivotal age in, in this young person's life. Um, but when you're building a product around it for people that maybe don't necessarily realize this is a problem, you know, we see this all the time. We see companies that come out here and they are trying to sell a product before they've really gone out and validated. I think one of the great things that, that Patrick has done is that he has validated, not just from his own experience, but also from conversations that he's had uh, with coaches, with parents, uh, and even some of the the kids that he's talked to, right? You've heard his stories. So I think that validation for me gives me some some real comfort in, in the fact that he's sort of heading down that right direction. But yeah, it is tough when you are trying to sell something to somebody that maybe doesn't realize that they have a problem, right? Recognizing that they have the problem is sort of that first step of the sales right. process. And then the second thing that really stuck out to me, and you know, it's something that that I grapple with as well, is when you're at a moment of transition in your life, really getting right with yourself, right? And this is not just a, a pro athlete. Obviously, he's played at the highest level. He's an Olympian. Uh, we might not have that experience, but we've been through moments of transition in our lives. We've, we've been through sort of tough positions where we're leaving jobs or something happening in family. Taking that time to really introspect and say, what do I want? What do I want to be? What do I want to put out there? that's an important practice. And I don't think we do that enough. I know mindfulness is starting to become like a, a real thing in the zeitgeist, but really, especially at those times of transition, the fact that he took that time for himself, you know, seems like he is a much happier and more fulfilled person now in, in the business that he's pursuing. And so I love that. I love that story. It was really great to hear it. Yeah. And I'm a huge believer in mental health awareness. And so I really appreciated the fact that he was willing to share as openly as he did. I also do appreciate uh, who, whoever his friend was that was with him that told him, hey, uh, maybe you should take the salary for one more year and <laughs> then we right. can always come back. <laughs> so, you know, it's important to get ourselves right, get our mind right, but also be practical about, you know, the situation that we're Part in. Part of that introspection is realizing what's in the bank account, right? So um, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that he did that too. Uh, hey, listen, Tim, this, is, uh, this was a great episode. Had a lot of fun with you. Had a lot of fun with Patrick. And uh, thank you for joining me uh, on this edition of the Partner Meeting. 
Thanks, Jay. All right, and that's it for this week's episode of The Game Plan with Jay Kapoor and Tim Cott. As always, thanks so much for listening. We really enjoyed getting deep with Patrick Iani, and we want to thank Chidozi Ibabuchi for making the intro. Special thanks to Spotify for hosting us at their audio lab. Hey, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at The Game Plan Show, or leave us a five-star review on iTunes. We'll see you next week on The Game Plan. <laughs>